Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're between the presidential election and inauguration day, now looking back at the last four years. Today, I'm joined by Olivia Nuzzi of New York Magazine. This is Episode 5. From the illiberal media reaction to the Tom Cotton op-ed in the Harper's Letter, to the over-reliance of the press on the Twitter feedback loop, to Newsy's time as Anthony Weiner's intern, we start with Trump versus the media. All right, Olivia, I wanted to start with uh, where we are right now. Obviously, it looks like the the Trump era is winding down. Uh, and, and there was a, a piece you wrote in October of 2018 that really stands out to me as sort of this representative of, of our of our moment over the last four years, which was your private Oval Office press conference with essentially, you know, everyone, not including Donald Trump, the, the most important people in the Trump administration, this, this kind of impromptu interview that you got. And, and I, I guess removing politics from from this, I, I wanted to start there and just the, the kind of the reality TV surreal nature from a media perspective of, the, of our last four years. What stands out to you? What will you remember from this era? Um. You know, there's a lot that I have forgotten already, probably, because so many things happen on any given day. Like when you first started saying that you were thinking about this story from 2018, I was sitting here kind of racking my brain like, oh, shit, what did I write in 2018? Um, I remember the one that you were talking about, but there's so much has happened. And I, I think consumers of news probably have the same problem where it's just hard to keep track of uh, of everything. And often I'm like... I find myself just sort of like trying to remember the exact sequence of these insane events. Um, But, you know, I guess with that said, what's been interesting about the Trump era, and I'm including in this the first campaign as well. So beginning in June of 2015, June 16th of 2015, um, is how even though so much happens all the time, if you were to, I don't know, shut it off for a week or for a month and come back, the central dynamics probably wouldn't change very much. Like all of these huge, hugely consequential stories are constantly breaking. I remember early on in the administration, uh, and you probably remember it too, maybe in like the spring of 2017, there was that period of time where like every day at five or six o'clock, some new bombshell story would would drop and there would be kind of like a collective like, oh shit, like across Washington from people who like were trying to process the story or like their editors are mad that they didn't have the story or whatever it was. Um, but even though all of these hugely consequential stories that in any other time would probably define an administration or define a campaign are breaking all the time. Um, The central dynamics of Donald Trump's Washington kind of haven't changed that much over nearly four years. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if that really answers your question. No, it does. It does. But I'd imagine, and obviously, you know, you, you, I want to talk about kind of your entry into the journalism world and, you know, it, it, this is certainly the the first of the main administrations that you've covered, but it does seem Mm. that this has been completely unique in the space of, of Washington's as we go, you know, Obama's Washington or Bush's Washington. I mean, this was sort of this unique moment of, and, and I do wonder, like, 
there's been this this effort, I think, to talk about, you know, transparency and and the mm-hmm. the uniquely bad nature, I guess, of Donald Trump in the in the media. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that there's some elements. No, <laughs> the media is <laughs> yeah. always complimenting. Uh, him. Yeah, well, we can talk about that. But I, I think that there's something also uniquely. Uh, I don't I don't want to say open because maybe that's giving it too much credit, but. There's there's the ability to get to what's actually happening uh, mm-hmm. seems pretty you know different and 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 kind of uh, kind of I interesting. Guess, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I didn't cover as you said. This is the first administration I covered. I did not cover the Bush administration. I did not cover the Obama administration. I started my career in you know the first time I interviewed Donald Trump, I was 22. At the Daily Beast, and I covered at that time what became the 2016 Republican primary field. So that was really where I where I started out, and so I have nothing to compare this to. And so I've spent a lot of my time, the last three and a half for almost four years, asking like the old timers in the White House, the photographers and the producers, and like the sound engineers and the janitors, like is this normal? You know, uh, just like normal stuff though, like not like you know, is it normal? Is he breaking the rules again of democracy and like raising my fist? But like you know, is it normal to be this late? Is it normal to have a lid this early? Is it normal? Like, you know, kind of minor logistical stuff. Um, And, um, you know, as you're talking about him being open, I guess the way that I think about it is it's not that he is transparent because this government has sought to hide tons of things. They, They try to hide things that don't make any sense to hide. They hide things that the story becomes about what they're trying to hide. And if they had just been transparent about it, it it probably would have been fine because they are so traumatized by the negative press that they're getting, even though they, it's, it's like the, they can't help but generate more negative press in their attempt to stop it. Yeah. The cover up is (laughs) uh, worse than the crime. Yeah. 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 Uh, It's like a million water gates every month. Um, But they are more extroverted, I think is how I think about it. Um, Trump is more extroverted, obviously. Trump is more extroverted than most politicians. Um, And so we understand him and his personality and his psychology more than you understand the average politician. And I think that's great. You know, I, I think it's wonderful that he tweets so much. It, like, annoys me because it interrupts, like... I was trying to take a photo of like a really beautiful sunset recently and like his tweets just started like (laughs) coming in like little like BBs uh, on my screen. Um, But, you know, I think it's great that we have the level of access that we do to him and to the people around him, but that's not the same thing as transparency, obviously. Right. And it does seem like in, in the reaction to Donald Trump and probably for a variety of reasons, there's been a, uh, a, a sort of equal and opposite reaction within the media. You wrote about sourcing as, as something that has shifted in, in the Trump era, uh, anonymity being granted far more often and more loosely than it has been in the past. Uh, and the way that that can lead to mistakes potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, do you think that the the way the media has somewhat, I would say, I don't know, you want to talk chicken or egg, but but been a reaction to Donald Trump in some of the loosening of standards, does that is that going to stick or is that going to go back? I don't know. Yeah, I see the Biden transition this week 
um, trying to rationalize and getting away with their lack of openness to the press and lack of transparency with the press. And, you know, they claim now that they're going to be having uh, regular briefings as was normal during a transition prior to Trump. Um, but that hasn't started yet. And it seems like, you know, much the way that the media has gotten away with certain uh, certain things, as you said, the lowering standard for, for attribution. Um, you know, politicians are, are learning from Donald Trump as well, right? And and are kind of adopting um, or, or not, it's kind of how, you know, no president's ever going to give back power <laughs> once, yeah. once presidential power has been expanded, no matter what their politics are. And I kind of think the same is true, um, you know, when it comes to dealing with the press and, and we're seeing that now and being a member of the press. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's, again, I don't have anything to compare it to. So I'm kind of like the wrong person to, to talk to about this stuff. But when I was talking about the sourcing in that, in that story that, that I believe you're referencing, which was like a profile of one of my sources. Yeah. Um, and there was a tough pitch to my editors. So it took a lot of explaining. Um, so I hope it worked out in the end. But um, they, I was kind of grap. I, I grapple with these things because not because I'm sitting here saying, "Oh, well, you know, it used to work this way, and I was more comfortable when it worked this way." But just because, like, I am dealing with it on a daily basis, and sometimes these things feel gross to me or feel like uncomfortable to me, and I'm just kind of sitting around navel gazing wondering like is this a really ethical moral way to go about this work and feeling bad about myself um so you know i i guess i think about these things more on a personal level um about you know what feels fair and what what doesn't yeah well, um, uh, in my own work i i think less, the, the piece itself was less a, i think a profile of an individual person than than that kind of uh yeah as you talk about this self-reflection this introspection that i i would argue is is sorely missing from much of the media just in general even I, if but i know why that is though you know i think about this a lot i, I was having a, i'm doing a story right now on a, the four seasons turtle landscaping oh, debacle. Yes. i'm doing like I'm, I'm hoping it'll be like the definitive word on the matter because now it's been like a week since it happened <laughs> i'm notoriously slow and um i uh i called someone yesterday like involved in the company um who i found in like a deep dive of some some public records and he was like how you know how did you find me no one else has has contacted me before and then he started giving me the whole like and this might happen to you too and your reporting were like is your publication a liberal publication or a conservative mm. publication like what are your politics and my i have a different working at a magazine i have way more freedom than people at papers or people at networks do or wires do obviously so i i realize that i have a privilege on that that um but like my view is to always it's always better to just be like totally transparent in those conversations with voters or with people you're reporting on i'm always like yeah we're definitely a liberal publication like i you probably will think that i'm a liberal based on some of my views even though like the left thinks i'm a right winger now and yeah, like, I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why that may be also. But. but like I, you know, I have those conversations as transparently as possible. And I find that that, that tends to yield like mutual respect and openness and like a willingness to listen. And I think that's great, but it takes time to have those conversations. And also it takes like, it, there's a certain level of risk involved, right? Like 
maybe that person works for James O'Keefe and they're going to like dox me. And, <laughs> um, and so I'm explaining that by way of explaining that, like, I think in, especially in the Trump era, it seems reporters are like so under attack all the time and just being like literally sometimes we've seen and and certainly online and, you know, reputationally. Um, I think that they're so afraid that like giving any inch, like allowing for the possibility that they might be wrong or they may not be doing something the right way. I think they're so afraid that like, if you admit potential fault at all, that like the whole thing will come tumbling down. And like, I, and I get that impulse. Like I get the impulse to not want to admit any bias or to not want to admit that like you have any beliefs um, because you don't want to be, to have like everything questioned then. Um, You don't want the snowball effect, but I, I think it hurts us in the end. I think we'd be much better served if reporters on an individual basis at least were not so terrified of yeah. like having a transparent conversation about their own worldviews. Right. Oh, and it's so counterproductive. You know, I think particularly now with where, you know, more independent media outlets that are not, you know, old school institutions like the broadcast networks or, you right. know, newspapers that have been around for hundreds of years um, are not beholden to those like old outdated rules. And the audience can see that you can still come across as fair and, and right. you know, and, and not you know, try to pretend in in, in a way. Right. Um, right. Me, and I realize, so it's easy for me to say that, but like, I understand that if you're like an embed at NBC, it's not like you can have a conversation like that and not be afraid you're going to get fired. Right. So like, it's, it's easy for me to say that. And well, I realize that. Yeah. Although it depends on kind of what, what uh, opinion you're putting out there, maybe on Twitter. Later, we'll talk about what Newsy describes as the cowardice of the White House press. But first, how Newsy got her start in the media, writing about her time as an intern for Anthony Weiner called her Monica. I came to know you at the time. I was writing about the media uh, in July of 2013. And uh, you wrote a piece. This was, I, I don't know what kind of clippings you had before this, what kind of clips, but this is for a NSW, NSFW Corp uh, about Anthony Weiner, where you were interning mm-hmm. uh, for Anthony Weiner's campaign. And, and at the time, you know, he had obviously had some uh, some things in his background at that point, but nothing criminal at that point. Uh, and was, mm-hmm. I would say God of the media was generally a fan of Anthony Weiner, uh, while he was running for mayor during those, during that time, um, were really open to his comeback. Uh, mm-hmm. you wrote a piece, uh, where he called you quote Monica, uh, for, first person piece, NSW, NSFW Corp. And then in the New York daily news, uh, tell me about, writing those, um, and also sort of some of the reaction you got to that. Um, yeah, so I was, uh, I was in college at the time and I was, I was writing for an alt weekly in New Jersey where I'm from. I'm from Red Bank, New Jersey, and the alt weekly was based in Asbury Park. Um, and I had been writing this column for them for like about a year and I had started freelancing a bit, uh, for various publications and NSFW Corp was kind of like, conceived in the vein of spy magazine they're based in las vegas and it was like this vaguely satirical but also they ran some some pretty serious investigative stories about big tech and things like that um and i um i was interning on wiener's campaign i mean i i thought at the time i couldn't decide whether or not i wanted to be a speechwriter and work in campaigns or whether i wanted to work in journalism. And so I thought like, what better place (laughs) to learn about comms than on like the campaign of the 
you know, disgraced congressman, um, media curiosity slash like perverse media darling Anthony Weiner. Um, but I didn't think that they would like let me be an intern because my only experience was writing articles for like liberal publications. Um, and I thought they would view that as like a red flag, uh, but they did not. And I interned for him for like a month and I took notes like the entire time of, you know, every off color remark I heard him say, (laughs) and, and I leaked, um, to, to people and they were like looking for the mole at one point and like (laughs) nobody suspected me. And, um, but my job to, if you could call it that, was to transcribe his interviews um, that he had done with the media. And I remember transcribing an interview, I think it was with um, with the New York Times Magazine. Maybe I can't remember uh, who the guy was, but the questions that he asked were like so fascinating and were really interesting psychologically. And like, it was a fascinating conversation. And I just remember thinking like, oh, like that's really fucking cool. Like I probably would rather do that than like my other job with the campaign, which was to rewrite the campaign literature and then have it like rejected by Anthony Weiner because I took out one of the, I took out 11 of the dozen references to him as a quote, middle-class fighter. I left one in and he wanted them all put back. (laughs) I was like, all right, fuck this. I like, am not cut out for this. Um, and so I, I didn't write about it while I was still interning there. I and I, I only I wrote about it. My editor at Not Safe for Work Corp, Paul Carr, the day that the Sydney Leathers scandal broke, um, which was a the next Anthony Weiner sex scandal. Sydney Leathers, yes, right. Yes, who's a friend of mine now. Uh, he, my editor, called me and he was like, "Look, if you don't write about this, like." you are a terrible reporter and I'm a worse editor. Um, And so I agreed to write about it. And then the Daily News reached out to me, um, Annie Carney, who now uh, is at the New York Times and uh, a friend of mine, we cover the White House together. Um, She reached out to me and um, hooked me up with the Daily News. And I, you know, wrote this column for them that they edited into this like really lame, like first person, like my education as a wean turn, I think is what they called it. <laughs> it's very, um, very tabloid. Uh, <laughs> cover story, yeah. Totally. And I remember, you know, the agreement that I had with the Daily News with the, the editor there at that time was uh, I would write it on the condition um, that, you know, I got final say on the copy and that they did not use my photo. And they were like, sure. Okay, great. Agreement. And then uh, the next morning, I remember waking up and my dad calling me at like 6 a.m. and being like, uh, why are you on the cover of the Daily News? <laughs> and, and like growing up... So they up, broke the agreement? I, wow. They broke the agreement. I was later told by um, by a, for a future colleague of mine that um, that they had like a a staff meeting, like, a, like an editor's meeting to talk about the risks of breaking the agreement and the likelihood that I would sue. And they decided that like, eh, it'll probably be good for her career. Like, so she, she probably won't be mad. And they were right. It was, and I wasn't <laughs> mad. Um, I was devastated at first. Cause like growing up, my dad would bring home the New York post and the New York daily news every day. And compared to the New York post, like the New York daily news is a very serious paper or was at the time. Yeah. Um, and so I just didn't think of it as a tabloid. Like I thought it was kind of like, I don't know, not that different from the New York Times. Um, And so I was totally shocked that they did that. And I was miserable and like thought I looked like, you know, it looked like I had like 
posed for a photo and sold my story to them. And I was totally devastated and hiding in my dorm room. And then, um, and then later on that day, I got a call from a reporter named Hunter Walker, who's yeah. now also covering the White House with Annie and I. <laughs> and uh, he told me that he had uh, had interviewed the campaign spokeswoman that morning and that she went on this like insane tirade uh, against me. And she call- she'd called me, uh, quote, a slut bag, a little cunt, and a fucking, fucking twat. Yeah, this is Barbara um, Morgan, the communications director also- <laughs> for Wiener. Yeah. <laughs> who is also a good friend of mine. <laughs> Oh, really? And um, Yeah. And uh, she's great. I love her. Um, And a very original vocabulary. I mean, you got to give it to her. And and I was thrilled when that happened because I thought, great, I now look like an angel in comparison and like no one's going to be going to be mad at me anymore for looking like I sold my story. I look like the victim here. So I was like absolutely thrilled that that happened. So I guess she thought she was like off the record or something when she just went off Eh, to Hunter? I heard the audio. I heard the audio and (laughs) there was no, nobody ever said anybody was off the record there. I mean, I love Barbara. She just went off and then he just published it. Yeah, I think if I'm recalling correctly, he had initially called her to like ask a question about some like campaign finance thing so it's possible that she just thought they were like just chit-chatting yeah. about this other thing but, but um, you know what's interesting though like i because i was gonna bring this up the, the piece itself i thought was really well done uh, you know not, not not the talking points memo piece that hunter wrote but yours in the new york daily news um and that is people that are familiar with the story will remember her reaction to it but i, I gotta say mm-hmm. I, I mean looking around a little bit like researching uh frank bruni column came up to me uh, i don't know if you remember this but he wrote that uh describing your New York Daily News piece, spilling secrets in return for a glamour shot on the front page of a major newspaper, (laughs) determining that attention was worth whatever crassness it called for. Uh, You know, the the reaction that came, I I, I think, from the media circles that were pretty favorable to Anthony Weiner for a very long time, probably longer than they should have been, um, knowing what we know now, uh, you know, there's something there that I I do wonder if, if... if, if those kinds of things in retrospect, look back and be like, how the like, can you imagine if that happened today? Oh no. If that happened today, it would be like totally different. But you know, I, I remember I was not upset about any of it really. Um, it was, it was about like three days of like absolute mayhem. Like every, I, I stayed completely, my strategy was to stay completely silent and to not give any interviews and not, not go on TV because I thought that if I did that, it would, um, it would solidify me as like the Anthony Weiner intern. Right. And it would be, it would be much more difficult to have a, have a second act uh, than if I had just, that if I just stayed quiet and waited for it to die down and then, you know, just, have my next statement be like producing work that I cared about, um, which is what I did in the end. And I, but it was three days of like TV trucks parked outside of like my parents' house in New Jersey where like, I wasn't even there. I was in New York at my dorm and like, and uh, you know, every TV show in the world calling and asking me to come on every magazine, you know, every paper. um, And you know, going on the Today Show and like Good Morning America, just like every request. Um, And just like this, it was very fascinating to watch how 
the take factory was like activated <laughs> and none of it had anything to do with me. Like I just had become this like avatar for. Right. Stories for about internships sorts. and stories. Yeah. About, yeah. Uh, and like, because I, and, and, you know, and stories about like women and betrayal and like all this shit that like I never even thought about. And like, I, it just had nothing to do with me. And because I had said so little, it's, was just all of this weird projection onto me. And I, I wasn't upset by it. I just thought it was very fascinating. And it was also fascinating from my perspective as someone just starting out in journalism to see how how many leaps in judgment writers and reporters would make and would end up with like minor inaccuracies throughout their stories. Right. Just like tiny things, you know, like guessing that if I had since I grew up in x place uh, I must have gone to x school or because I went to x school I must have graduated from x school or because uh, you know I interned for Anthony Weiner I my views must be x y or z and just how the the inaccuracies would kind of pile up um, if you if you didn't if you weren't careful and that was fascinating to watch um, and I I think it was useful for me to go through that experience in a because most reporters, I think, don't have the experience of being a subject well, until they're pretty far into their careers. The ridiculous media reaction to Tom Cotton's Send in the Troops op-ed, that's next. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas, featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. Now... Back to Olivia Nuzzi. I want to fast forward to to June uh, of this year and the Tom Cotton op-ed, uh, which mm-hmm. I, I you know wrote a lot about in Fourth Watch. I think that was you know New York Times publishing the Tom Cotton op-ed, which you know sending the troops to deal with uh, uh, you know uh, riots in different cities uh, over in the so- social justice uh, protests. There was sort of an offshoot of that. Um, you know Tom Cotton's piece went out. The New York Times had this like complete shitstorm that you know of of people uh, you know in internal Slack channels that spilled out publicly. The editor was, you know, essentially removed mm-hmm. from that. Uh, and you tweeted, uh, the best way to shut down a bad opinion is not to suppress it, but to share a better opinion. Not, I don't think it's controversial to believe that reporter, <laughs> excuse me, reporters should always be on the side of putting more information into the public sphere about how public officials think. Pretty, I, I would say, uncontroversial opinions um, <laughs> that were basically dealt with in, in an insane way. But before I get into how it was dealt with, I, I, I'm curious your, you know, as you look back on that now, uh, what what happened there? Do you think at the New York Times? I mean, I think that it was kind of like this perfect storm of all of these different environmental factors um, meeting this op-ed and reacting in like the worst possible bad faith way to it you know and like the the goalposts kept moving during that debate too right initially it was like this puts black lives in danger this opinion itself 
that yeah. is bad and unprintable. That was the line, the, the, the danger line, I think, came from their that union. That was first, yeah. right? Like, the, But that was what the first reaction was about. And then the goalpost moved. Then it became, oh, actually, there are factual inaccuracies in this piece, and that's why it's unprintable, and that's why it should be you know, retracted or whatever, Tom Cotton should be killed or whatever the, whatever the reaction was. And then it became like, oh, but actually, James Bennett sucks at his job in general. <laughs> and this is the last straw and that's why this was unprintable and this is bad and why he should why he shouldn't be here so it kept changing and this always happens with debates about speech and the left and the right and it's like it's never the debate that you start out having changes midway through and so there's no way to win it right because yeah. the terms keep changing well, yeah, I, I mean, it, it ended up with like, you know, this is this is bad grammar in it or something. But no, I mean, the, the, the idea that it's dangerous, and I, and I have to say, just to call a couple of them out, I mean, Keith Olbermann said, this naive access reporter understands facts but couldn't tell if they add up to truth or a shoe collection, which seems pretty fucking sexist to me. Um, but even things like what Jamel Bowie, who is a columnist of the New York Times, wrote, let's say Stephen Miller called for forcibly sterilizing every Hispanic immigrant in the country. Should the Times run that op-ed? Like this insane leap to get to that. And then I, and I also say Jasmine Hughes, who writes also for, or is a is an employee Hughes. of the New York Times, just wrote, girl, I need you to delete this. I kind of thought Jasmine was joking. Um, I love Jasmine Hughes. I think she's a fantastic writer and editor. And like, I would be edited by her in a heartbeat. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't really take any of that kind of I don't take it personally. Like I know that by weighing in on something like that, like it's not like people are going to be like, Oh yeah, you're right, Olivia. Like good, good call. I, I changed my opinion now. Um, I don't, I just don't take it personally. Um, and I, I just think it's important to, to articulate your views on something like that. Like you can't just cede the floor to only people who agree with each other who, you know, are just patting each other on the back at that point for for having the right opinion. Like, I think it's totally okay to, to differ on these matters. And like people who think that it is um, not okay to have different views on these things, I think are probably like in the wrong business. Yeah, but... And that's it, by the way, all that said, like, I completely disagree with Tom Cotton. I, like, of course, this I is not Tom about Cotton's the substance of fucking, Tom Cotton. No, yeah. like, I totally disagree with Tom Cotton. I think Tom Cotton's like a bad faith fucking idiot. Um, I also don't think that newspapers in general or any publications in general should be in the business of publishing op-eds like from politicians in general. Like that's my view. But while they are in the business of publishing op-eds by politicians, I think it's absolutely fine if a politician wants to articulate his view that he hold, he shares with 60% of the country, You're mind right. you, on this issue. Um, I think that there is value in, in publishing that. Should it have been fact-checked more rigorously? Sure. Yeah. Like, should it have been edited better? Should it have been looked at by the head of the op-ed section? Maybe. Um, but was it this uh, dangerous event that should have resulted in somebody's firing? I, I don't think so. Right, right. Well, and to your, to your point, you know, 
not I, I think that the principles that you and I are talking about that you and I completely agree on about, you know, hearing from other people and, you know, words like that are not dangerous. Um, and you say, you know, if you're if you don't believe that you should be in a different business, even though most of America, I think, believes what you and I believe on that, I would say that it, the, the, the majority of people that are in positions, uh, you know, it, it, at a lot of mainstream publications don't don't agree with that right now. What made Newsy sign the Harper's letter? And what did you think about the response? That's coming up. But first, another edition of Blocked, Ridiculous Stories of Media Twitter. This is where I tell you a little bit about myself by telling you people who have blocked me on Twitter. This one is actually an organization that's called Verit. Uh, Verit, it's a really weird short-lived website launched in September 2017 as a way to, quote, verify news stories by giving pieces of information verification numbers. It was founded by Peter Dow, a former political consultant and giant Hillary Clinton fan. Hillary actually gave it a shout out on day one, and Politico said it looks like North Korean agitprop. A few months later, I noticed the site was taken down. The reason given was to essentially blame people for not taking it seriously enough. I noted this on Twitter, and the site responded by blocking me. Although now it's actually suspended and shut down itself. Blocked on February 12th, 2018. Still blocked. Now back to Olivia. You look at like the reaction to the Harper's letter, which which you signed um, and mm-hmm. seemed, again, like a pretty you know, <laughs> uncontroversial statement. Um, and, you know, the, but two- the, <laughs> the reaction to the Harper's letter was just proved the point of the Harper's letter. Exactly. Where the reaction to the Harper's letter had nothing to do with the Harper's letter. It had only to do with a couple of people who signed the Harper's letter who people find to be controversial or they think that their views are repellent. And that then became what the Harper's letter was to the people who decided to make it into a big issue, right? Like it was appalling because JK Rowling signed it. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's just not, that's not how we have an intellectual fair debate in this country. As far as I'm concerned, like if you want to debate the merits of the letter, that's fine. Um, but I didn't even know who the fuck was signing the letter when I agreed to sign it. You know, and I don't care. And I don't care. Right. Like I don't care. It doesn't make the letter less true because, um, the Harry Potter lady who's like a turf signed it. Like well, I don't, yeah, I don't or, care. Or Malcolm Gladwell or David Frum or Fareed Zakaria. Like why, why are you then aligned with, with her, but not them? Or why are they not aligned with her? I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense, but it also. No, and I think it's good when people who you have fundamental disagreements with, when you can agree on certain things. I mean, look no further than the left embracing the fucking architects and cheerleaders of the Iraq war over in during the resistance, right? Like embracing the Lincoln project, embracing the never Trump movement. Like that's beautiful. I think that's America when you disagree fundamentally on most issues, but you agree on one big important thing and you work together to accomplish something politically. I think that's cool. Like, and I don't really see why people only only understand that when it's like directly affecting them or their interests and they can't understand it in a broader way. Yeah. Well, I would, I would say, uh, you know, you go to like something like the Lincoln project, there's a cynical nature of oh, aligning totally. yourself to it. But, uh, but let me just say this, cause I think there was a response to the Harper's letter that was then like another open letter that was like, Oh, you know, these, the, 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 yeah. the Harper's letter. But, but what really stuck out to me is that you put your name on it. And there were so many people on that response letter that said, you know, works at New York times work, you know, or is a journal 
journalist and refused to and and kept themselves anonymous yeah. as if it's some sort as if they're trying <laughs> to hide the fact that they are they they are assigning their name to a letter that you know is, is in some way going to get some sort of blowback. Whereas you put your name on it, Barry Weiss put her name on it, who was at the New York Times yeah. on the Harper's letter itself. That that really stuck out to me also is like wh- why do they feel like they can't you know, actually put their name on something. It's just a lack of courage. I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's that they feel like they can't. It's that they feel like they can't without potentially facing some sort of negative fallout, right? But that is just, that doesn't work for me. Like, I'm not having a debate with people anonymously, right? I don't respond to, like, people with no name or picture on Twitter, right? Like, I'm not going to respond to a letter signed by like anonymous employees of some institution. Like, I just think that's uncool and like not worth my time and not worth anybody's time. We're going to end with Newsy on Betsy Rothstein, the cowardice of the press and the fourth watch lightning round. Six questions in 60 seconds or a little bit more than 60 seconds. But first, another edition of How Did This Get Published? It was a headline that was sure to excite the hashtag resistance crowd on Twitter, a triple bylined Associated Press piece titled AP finds most arrested in protests aren't leftist radicals. It's been picked up as AP pieces often are everywhere in the week since it was published. But what does it really mean? And is it even true? The AP writes that they reviewed thousands of pages of court documents in order to arrive at their conclusion, which is that, quote, very few of those charged appear to be affiliated with highly organized extremist groups. This is the first red flag. Quote, very few is, of course, a subjective term. And worse, claiming that individuals are not part of a, quote, highly organized extremist group doesn't necessarily mean they aren't, quote, leftist radicals. Again, all of this is very vague. What even is a leftist radical? What does it mean to be, quote, highly organized versus just regular organized? Do they have an org chart? There's no answers. The quote goes on to actually say something else. It says that very few of those charged appear to be affiliated with highly organized extremist groups, and many are young suburban adults from the very neighborhoods Trump vows to protect from the violence in his re-election push to win support from the suburbs. In other words, this is actually really just about trying to claim a comment from Trump is a, quote, lie. The AP looked at 300 arrests, of which there are currently 286 defendants. How many does the AP describe? as leftist radicals. They don't say. Throughout the entire article, though they do concede, some of those facing charges undoubtedly share far-left and anti-government views. Again, subjective. What does some even mean? By way of exemplifying how it's not just locals who are getting arrested, the AP gives this stat about Portland, Oregon. Of the 93 people arrested on federal criminal charges in Portland, 18 defendants are from out of state. Okay. Or put another way, 75 are actually Portland residents who have been arrested. Are they, quote, leftist radicals? Are they just hippies? We don't know. The AP doesn't tell us. The AP slapped a very shareable headline on a story that sounds like it gives objective data, but never does. The Associated Press, how did this get published? Back to Olivia. Betsy Rothstein uh, is someone that you knew really well. You wrote a great um, piece about her uh, in in New York Magazine after she sadly passed away. Um, I knew her a little bit. Uh, she was, oh, you a, did. yeah, she was a, and she also, I had talked to her a couple months before she had died, um, about, you know, she fourth watch and, and she was a, a regular reader there. I think, you know, the, 
the reaction to Betsy also uh, kind of, I don't know, she might have sort of I enjoyed. I think Betsy would have loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica Valenti, uh, after the Harper's letter, described you as someone who wrote a fawning obituary of a woman known for harassing a leading black journalist and his family, uh, uh, you know, sort of naming her that way. But I, what, what do you think she represented in a media that no longer exists? You know, Betsy, I met Betsy, um, like a lot of young journalists met Betsy, which is like when she mentioned me in her column. And it was always like, a, you know, it would come out in the middle of the day and she would, uh, she really did boost young journalists um, in that column, which I think is really cool. She was very generous in that way. Um, look, Betsy got a lot wrong like factually, <laughs> like big and small things. She was not um, the most careful reporter of all time, to put it mildly, and that she would admit to that. Like I remember one time she um, she like wanted to um, she wanted to. I was in like Iceland or something, and she was like mentioning it in her um, in her column, and she asked me to send a photo, and she proceeded to get like every detail. <laughs> this little item like every detail wrong like she got like my boyfriend's name wrong like the name of the country we were in wrong like the the name of the river like my boyfriend worked at the time wrong and then like her correction was also wrong but like it was never with like malice or anything she just was like a little bit of a a little bit of a space cadet um but she really had balls and like she just was really courageous and sometimes I didn't understand the feuds that she was having or like why she was so focused on uh a a topic or or a person um but she had fun with what she did and she even though I think she you know she hurt a lot of people's feelings she didn't do it with malice and she she had courage well yeah and I mean it's just really lacking right now and I think people I think one of the reasons why media doesn't feel fun very often is because like you can't have fun if you're fucking terrified of a mob coming after you um and i i think that kind of motivates like hiding from the mob motivates a lot of um a lot of media coverage right now um and she just wasn't like that she didn't care and but i think like some of her best stories if you go back to her time covering the hill like she focused on characters who you might pass by, you know, like a character working in a restaurant in the capital, you know, or uh, a, an assistant somewhere who, like, nobody would know about otherwise. Like, she she noticed little things, and sometimes that pissed people off because she noticed something they didn't want them to know, didn't want her to notice. Um, but you know, she just. She was a, a genuinely strange, original, sweet woman yeah. who, you know, pissed people off and didn't give a fuck. <laughs> but, and you described her as a professional thorn in the side of Washington media figures. And, and I do wonder, you speak, talk about like, you know, the the being, you know, having balls. Like one of the things that I feel like we're missing now is that everyone is so afraid of even just like their Twitter mentions, uh, you know, and of crossing the wrong media figure on one level or even just a political figure. And I do wonder as we transition out of the Trump era into what will, you know, appears to be the Biden administration, 
does that change at all? Because, you know, if there's any positive thing that I, th- I would say that the media did, at least they grew some balls when it comes to, you know, speaking truth to power. I think they went completely overboard and they got insane things wrong yeah. because they believed Trump was this existential threat. But at least they were tough instead of just like, you know, friends with everybody. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if we'll get that back at all. If we'll get back. Yeah, get get that sort of adversarial nature with even this administration that's coming in. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I see already any mild criticism of Biden in, in, during the campaign and, and now the response from the left is like, well, how could you be pointing this out when you pointing this out inevitably it means that you are you don't care or you're allowing like Donald Trump to get away with murder, right? And it's like, no, like you can fucking you can care about more than one thing at one time. And just because I care about a lack of transparency from Joe Biden does not mean that I'm like ignoring the fact that Donald Trump hasn't conceded yet. You know, like you could you it's possible to care about multiple things at once. But I, I think that I don't know. I think that the media unfortunately is full of people who are who want like approval from people in power and who want to be like patted on the head and told that they're doing a good job or that they're smart. And it's like this kind of class of apple polishers who have always been a part of the establishment and have always been a part of the elite, you know, who come from Ivy league universities and go to these institutions. Um, these news institutions and are not really comfortable needling people in power because they, they want to be accepted. And I think that's the wrong attitude to have in this industry. And that's not to say like, I know what the right attitude to have is. I don't know anything. And I'm constantly questioning whether or not I'm, I'm fucking up. But like, I think that there is just a, a reluctance to make one's social life uncomfortable um that it was easier in the trump era and i think it's going to be harder in the biden era for reporters uh, to not feel uncomfortable and i'm i'm nervous about that honestly I, I genuinely am because i still even even in the trump era even though a lot of reporters or a lot of pundits definitely were like falling over themselves to embarrass themselves to talk about how you know trump is like way worse than for for some reason everyone's always exaggerating these things that didn't need to be exaggerated uh, oh, yeah. when it comes to trump and even in that environment i still saw tremendous cowardice from establishment members of the press like the white house correspondents association has no spine even in the trump era they absolutely suck at what they do they are terrified of pissing off the administration and it's like if that's what they're like when like the president is calling us the enemy of the people like what are they going to be like in the biden administration i'm like genuinely scared yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, in addition to to having a spine would be helpful, but also, yeah, that that introspection of not thinking everything you're doing is completely right, um, which I think was the other major flaw of this of this yeah. moment is so confident in everything yep. when so much was proven not to have uh, have gone the way that you uh, that you thought it was going to. But 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think data journalism is like, and polling is like one area where that's definitely true. I think I said something to this effect last week, but like, it's just an unwillingness to like admit that you might not be able to have the answers and like an unwillingness to live with nuance. And people are always like screaming at me about the fact that I like humanize people that they don't like. But it's like, yeah, well, I'm sorry, people are fucking complicated. And people are human. Pe- yeah. And people populate the government. So if you want to understand like why we're fucking something up or why we're doing something that makes no sense, I think you could start maybe by understanding the very complicated people um, at the center of these things. And it's like if you say that, you're just basically a Nazi sympathizer to a certain segment of the left. It's it's really exhausting, but yep. I, whatever, yep. who cares? And the pendulum's <laughs> going to swing way into the other direction now, I, I would say. Probably. But, uh, uh, all right. Well, that, that was great. Let me end with the uh, uh, lightning round here. Six, six questions, 60 seconds. Where were you born? New York. All right. You work in New York Magazine, uh, Washington Correspondent. What is one benefit and one cost of that role? Oh, um... I mean, the benefit is I get to work for my favorite magazine. Um, the cost, I, there really is none. It's, I mean, it's a really great job and I'm like really terrified that it's gonna, I guess the cost is like print is probably dying and <laughs> and it might go away at some point, but like knock on wood, I hope it doesn't go yeah. away in my lifetime. They've got a good digital setup going also. So yeah. Uh, yeah. What, who is someone who's been a mentor for you? Oh, um, I've had so many mentors. Um, yeah, Maureen Dowd has been a big influence on me and has been a mentor. Um, Sally Quinn, Maggie Haberman, Taffy, Broadisar Ackner, um, Lisa Tadeo, um, Jackie Kusinich Allen. It's a long list. Katie nice. Baker. It's a very long list. That's that's a good list. Uh, who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? I don't know. Would anyone be surprised if I had like a problematic fave? I feel like <laughs> Betsy <laughs> Rothstein. <Like, laughs> yeah, I mean, um, one person I believe. Uh, oh, I don't. I don't know. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Hmm. Brittany Shepard from Yahoo. All right, nice. One year from today, what's one prediction you have for the media? One year from today. Um, hmm, what, it's almost Thanksgiving. So it'd be too early for us to have like fucked up the Christmas party at the White House yet, but I feel like that's going to come. Um, I think something will replace Quibi that will also collapse. <laughs> It, like in the times between now and one year from now, I think we'll have like a second Quibi like boom and bust. And um, what else? I think, and I bet like Bezos is going to buy like the Atlantic or something like that. <laughs> All right. We'll have to see if that comes true. I like it. Uh, Olivia, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Olivia Nuzzi of New York Magazine. Go follow her on Twitter. She's great. Not verified. Kind of interesting. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. It started in December of 2019, so we're coming up on a year since we launched. It's three times per week. It's free. You can go to fourthwatch.media to subscribe. Join me. Let's build a better media together. 
If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper, Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And also download this podcast as you're listening to it right now. Subscribe, uh, follow on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast rate, review. All of that goes a long way. This podcast was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. We'll be back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.